Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, presented by Conserve the Wild, your destination for an unfiltered look at conservation. Now let's get wild. Welcome back to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast. That's right, it's my voice. You know it. I'm your host, Jason Creighton. Today's episode is number 44, Managing Private Property for Wildlife. Today, I have a vastly knowledgeable guest on the podcast. His name is Eric Lance. He is a professionally certified wildlife biologist and natural resource professional. He owns and operates a private consulting company that basically just focuses on helping private landowners manage their properties. But that's not it. He's also a professor at Kent State University in the Department of Biological Sciences. And we're going to talk a whole lot about habitat management. We're going to talk about deer management. We're going to talk about biology, upland game birds, conservation. And really the whole point of this whole conversation is the importance of the private landowner management plan. I met Eric out in Harrisburg at the Great American Outdoor Show. He was a fellow booth worker at the QDMA booth that I was working at back in February. We were there all day. We had some great conversations. I can't even express just how knowledgeable he is in this realm. You are in for a treat. So after a quick break, let's get right into it. And today we're joined by Eric Lance. Eric, how are you doing today? Good, Jason. How are you doing, man? Oh, doing pretty good. Uh, just... Uh, Everyone just heard your, all your credentials, uh, why I would like to, you know, why I wanted to have you on. Uh, we met back in ooh, February, uh, working the QDMA booth in Harrisburg. And, um, you know, we had some, since we sat there all day, you know, we had some pretty good conversations and then talking with other people coming up to the booth, had some good conversations and you have some great information. So let's start with the first credential I listed. You're a professor. Uh, can you just sort of talk about some of the things that, that you cover in your class? Yeah, so like you said, I'm a, I'm a college professor um, on the side, and uh, I teach in the Department of Biological Sciences, so really my appointments um, can, can vary. Um, I teach everything from introductory biology classes, microbiology, those types of things, but I also spend a majority of my time teaching the uh, forestry classes, conservation of natural resources, and, and, and those kind of classes uh, for the upper division students. So um, we, we focus on a lot of different things. Like I said, teaching forestry, we have wildlife-specific classes and things like that. So just depending on the class, you know, we, we focus on those areas. So that's pretty much uh, what, my, what my academic uh, 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 courses go. So you're pretty much teaching like what the next generation of experts in conservation would would be basically, right? 
Yeah, so so how so the university I teach at is Kent State University. Um, they have a few satellite uh, univer- uh, colleges, so I'll, I'll teach at those. Um, and really, they don't have a specific wildlife conservation uh, program like a lot of schools do, but they have a lot of electives. So they do have a um, environmental science program. They do have a, a conservation uh, degree, but nothing, like I said, specifically focused on wildlife. So a lot of those students, you know, unfortunately don't really know what they're what they want to get into. They have an idea. They have aspirations to, you know, go go do certain things, and they just don't really have the direction. So, you know, with me also working in the field as a consultant, you know, I've been I've been in that field for over twelve years, and I've navigated that space. So, helping these students is, is another side that um, you know I get to incorporate into into that teaching program as well. So, like I said, most of them you know have all these aspirations of, of going out west and working for a state game agency as a as a wildlife biologist and, and all those types of things but you know I get a lot of them that, that really don't know what they want to do and they start taking my class and you know then next thing you know you know I get emails from them or I see them and, and they're working as a, as a consultant themselves so um, it's all across the board really but like I said most schools at the, at the university level when you have specific wildlife degree programs like Penn State and you know University of Georgia and Mississippi State those ones I mean those students are pretty well set as far as they know what they want to do when you have a a bigger school like Kent, um, you know, that doesn't have as uh, tailored of a program for that. You kind of get of a, a little bit of a diversity, if you will, um, on what the students are actually trying to do. So, yeah, you got to play off that a little bit. So it can be a challenge sometimes, but generally those are courses that um, students are engaged in and uh you know have a lot of interest in as well even if they don't want to be a consultant i mean if you're going into a biology program you know you have an interest in in uh animals wildlife and that kind of thing so even if they're just taking it as an elective you know it's a class they enjoy so yeah and there's something to be said for having that diversity of students that aren't taking the classes solely just for that end result job, you know, just having that general knowledge that they're gaining from that class to take into whatever field it is that they end up pursuing, uh, that's that's going to help wildlife and conservation and, and that kind of thing as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you don't have to be a wildlife biologist, you know, to appreciate it. You know, I mean, you take people that, you know, students that go through that program, you know, what I try to focus on is, you know, is to just help obviously educate them, but, but talk about, you know, these topics that are in the media, you know, on social media, you know, the big one is, is, uh, hunting, you know, a lot of people have a lot, as I'm sure, you know, a lot of people have a lot of misconceptions on, on hunters and and just hunting in general. So, you know, uh, you'd be surprised, you know, people listen to this. I mean, you'd be surprised at how many students that I have, that are, you know, biology students and things like that, that have never hunted and they just don't know anything about it. So like you said, you know, helping to educate that next generation, even if it's to the extent of next time they're on social media and they see someone getting chastised for, you know, hunting, you know, whether it no matter what species it is, at least they have a better understanding of what the, the hunting industry is, you know, how hunting plays and the role of conservation and, and uh, species management all across the globe, not just not just here in North America, but, you know, in other places as well. So, you know, those are the kind of things that I typically do with students, um, you know, having uh, special assignments on, you know, picking something in the media, some hot topic in the media, you know, like that and, and just getting them that that, um, you know, experience dealing with that topic. So they're just more educated when they're out in the world. 
you know, it's funny that you mentioned, you know, media and, and sort of things that are hot topic, because just before we come on, came on, I saw that the Department of the Interior, and Grant, this was, you know, not global, this is, you know, just our country, but Department of the Interior just released a press release that talks about the amount of money that's been invested uh, through the purchase of firearms, fishing equipment, licenses, things like that. And, um, you know, basically it comes out and says right in the very beginning that, uh, that sportsmen and women generated nearly a billion dollars in excise taxes last year. Uh, you know, and that's just, that is used solely for conservation programs. Um, and, you know, having, it says here that, um, through the life of this, it's $2.2 billion. Uh, and then that, that's also been sort of matched funds of uh, $7.6 billion from state programs, you know, and so, you know, I just tweeted out right before we got on uh, sort of a, a recap of that. And it's, you know, $3.5 billion, you know, total, or I'm sorry, um, $30.5 billion total. Uh, and that doesn't even include the hundreds of millions of dollars that go into conservation, you know, game species conservation programs that a lot of hunters and anglers are donating their own hard-earned dollars towards um yeah and then i mean then take into account like the pittman robertson act i mean you have those you know i mean there's the the amount of monetary contributions that sportsmen you know hunters anglers um you know at the state level forget even the national level but even at the state level you know like here in ohio i mean i'm in ohio and i know you're in pennsylvania you know, but I mean, I've had this conversation with a lot of people before is like, you know, the amount of money that goes into the state because of hunting license fees, you know, game tag fees, you know, fishing license fees. I mean, you name it, you know, it's it's like, hey, you know, you enjoy hiking the trails of, of this park system. Do you enjoy those horseback riding trails or the canoe liveries? Like, who do you think pays for that? Who do you think maintains that? You know, that nice, you know, non-pothole, you know, bike trail that goes through that park system. I was like, you know, a lot of that stuff is managed and maintained because of the money that comes in from sportsmen's and, you know, what we pay, you know, as far as fees and things like that. that people just don't have any any concept of what that number is. And then you extrapolate that out to, to things like I said, you know, the, the Pittman Robertson act that, you know, goes, you know, towards restoration and improvement of wildlife habitat. I mean, it, it's, that's the tax that you, you get deducted from, you know, when you buy uh, sporting goods and things like that. So, you know, it's, it's unbelievable the amount of money that goes in that, that people just don't have any knowledge of. Yeah. I mean, my wife and I will, when we're done recording this, we're actually going to be heading up to our cabin and not even a mile down the road are some state game lands that are in the state of Pennsylvania. We have in the state over a million acres of it, and that's been solely funded by license sales. And, you know, the crazy thing is, is that while it says, you know, state game lands, you, you know, and obviously funded by the license sales, you would think it's solely for hunters, but there are all kinds of people that utilize the state game lands for activities outside of hunting and fishing and yet we're we're you know hunters are paying for that and yet all these other people get to enjoy them as well so uh which is a great thing but a lot of people that might go hike through one because a trail goes through it uh, aren't necessarily realizing that no absolutely 
So that's great. I, I think it's absolutely awesome that you keep that sort of uh, open mind or try to project that open mindedness to your students in your classes. But then you also have that consulting business. So what what do you do? How what kind of consulting do you do? And, and I'm I'm assuming a lot of it is for private landowners. So like what for the average landowner, if they're if he's calling you, he or she's calling you, what are you doing for them? Yeah, so I do own and operate a, a eco. It's more of a natural resource consulting business. So you're right. I do a lot of work with private landowners, and but I also do a lot of work environmentally as well for um, you know oil and gas, you know electrical utility, that kind of thing, um, where I go out and you know do some endangered species stuff and, and things like that. But primarily, my focus is on private landowners. Um, you know, so generally, what happens with that is, you know. My private landowners, their interest is managing their property, you know, for better hunting is really what it boils down to. You know, they want to go out there, whether it's for, you know, white-tailed deer, whether it's for turkey or, or other upland game birds like pheasants. Um, you know, it's it just that's that's their goal, you know, is they want to manage their property for better hunting success, better opportunities. You know, and let's, and let's face it, you know, people that are managing for deer, they want big bucks, right? I mean, that's, that's what it boils down to uh, for a lot of it. So a lot of people call me and, you know, like as a biologist to come out there and consult them on their property. So generally what we do is, you know, we go out there for the initial consultation and, and talk with the, the landowner and identify what the goals are. You know, what's your goal for, you know, wanting to manage your property? What What is the you would like to uh, accomplish? What's your time frame? You know, then you have to look at limiting factors, which usually are, you know, is monetary. So, you know, what's your budget for this and, and that kind of thing. So there's a lot of things that go into the planning aspect of that. Once we go, you know, from there, it really depends on what they want to do. So we also have a land management component side to it as well. So not only will we go in and do either a, a general walk and talk, you know, with a private landowner or, you know, we have landowner uh, clients that have us go in and do a complete biological inventory, um, GIS mapping uh, of their property and, and things like that. So it can go, you know, it's a, it's a piecemeal, if you will, type of package service, just depends on what they want um, and then once everything is all done and, and we have our recommendations you know we send out the you know the reports and, and have our discussions and and everything like that with the landowner then it comes down to well you know do they want to go ahead and implement the practices whether it's you know timber related or you know early successional habitat related or whatever it is you know if they do not have the means or they just simply don't want to do it we have uh, land management technicians and, and things like that that um, you know will help implement those as well so you know really you know I, I piecemeal uh, everything together for each individual client you know so I it, it just it differs depending on the, on the goals and things like that but you know that's generally what it is you know landowners they want to like I said better manage their habitat um, and and just you know be better better stewards of, of their property and and give themselves the best opportunity for for a harvest my family property this cabin that we're going to we have you know 70 acres uh and for 35 years when my grand after my grandfather purchased it basically sat idle uh there was a couple of timber harvests but it was solely for money there was really nothing uh that was done to benefit wildlife and then uh, my uncle planted a food plot for some better hunting and then i started getting into the you know researching and trying to learn 
some different things about how to do things to benefit wildlife. And like you said, I mean, let's be honest, most of the people that are doing this are doing it for better hunting opportunities. And that's a lot of what we have done in the past 10 or 12 years, you know, or at least that's the focus that we've had on it. But as I research more and as we do some of these things, we notice that even the improvements that we make for uh, better deer hunting or better turkey hunting are also benefiting other wildlife species. And a lot of them aren't even game species. So, you know, managing your personal land that you have, even if it is geared towards hunting, it's still having a great big impact on a wide range of wildlife. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and this is exactly what we talk about in uh, classes like, um, you know, wildlife resource conservation that we teach at Kent State. You know, and that's why a lot of times I focus on white-tailed deer as my examples in class because you hit the nail on the head right there. Is is when you large when you manage for a large game species. You know, like here in Ohio, I mean, the, the white-tailed deer is the, the the largest mammal that we have. So when you look at the things that you have to manage in the white-tailed deer habitat, like you said, th- there is a cascading effect from from the top down. Is what are you managing for white-tailed deer? Well, you're managing timber. Right. So you're doing some timber resource management in there. So that's going to obviously have effect on on uh, uh, songbirds and, and, you know, just avian species that, that utilize that. You're going to have other mammal species, you know, ground dwelling mammals and things like that. that are going to benefit from that. What's next? Then you look at early, early successional habitat. I mean, the, the list goes on and on and on. You're going to have a, a very positive influence and just the abundance of wildlife or the the diversity of wildlife on your property. And if you have that, like I tell my land, my, my clients, I said, when you have that, you have a healthy ecosystem on your property. You have, you know, a lot of individual species doing what they do in nature. And if you're focused on a, a particular species like the white-tailed deer, well, you know what? You've got a happy, happy community going on and, and everything is interacting normally and, and comfortably. And you're just setting yourself up for success, you know, and it gives you other opportunities as well. I mean, if you look at, you know, like you, we were talking about earlier about some of the things that go on for um, the contributions of, of the finances and stuff that outdoorsmen contribute. I mean, that, that's what the state agencies are looking at also. I mean, they manage these areas so that you can have the recreational components to it as well. You know, I have clients that, you know, enjoy that component as well. They love taking their grandkids out and, and go bird watching. You know, I had one that, that enjoys that, another one with pollinators and, and things like that. So by doing those and, and just managing for one particular species like the white-tailed deer, you know, you're going to have a cascadingly positive effect from the top down for just a wide abundance of species. I mean, you, you could you could talk for days about those benefits, but but definitely from the ecosystem level, you're going to have just a healthy one on your property. If that, if that's your focus. Yeah. I mean, just to throw an example out there for everyone, uh, you know, on our property, we did a a select timber harvest um, that was going to, we were doing it to benefit tree regeneration, which is going to help uh, white-tailed deer. Uh, But then we also, you know, one, as you do things, you're 
doing different levels that are going to help those different species. So we do that timber harvest and that's, that's going to help. Then, uh, you know, we're planting food plots in some areas and obviously that's going to help. Uh, but then adding those sort of more open areas, you get grasses and, and those food plots growing up and then you get insects in there and that's going to help the turkey. And then we also decided we were going to start an orchard. So uh, we have these trees that now blossom and bloom. That's, you know, the pollinating uh, aspect as well. And then to try to help with that a little bit, I actually uh, introduced some mason bees to our area uh, to help with that pollination, which uh, actually started springing up some uh, rogue apple trees and some uh, blueberries and raspberries that started growing after that timber har harvest. So, you know, it, it's just everything sort of has these, like you said, cascading uh, effects that, that keep helping more and more in different varieties of wildlife. Yeah, you know, and, um, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, it's, it's one of those things too, to, to kind of, uh, segue into a little bit is that when we talk about habitat management, like what you just gave in that example, what was a lot of different things is talking about what we call primary practices versus secondary practices, you know, looking at it from the, from the private landowner is anybody in the hunting world. Right. If you're a hunter, I mean, you've undoubtedly have read um, hunting magazines and things like that. And, and everything that's pushed is talking about food plots. Well, if you're just planting a food plot on your property, what are you really benefiting? Primarily, the big benefit is going to be with, let's face it, you know, white-tailed deer, because that's what you're targeting. You're not, you, you may have some interactions with other species that are utilized in those areas, depending on what you plant and how big. But when you focus on primary practices, like timber stand uh, regeneration practices or timber stand improvements, um, those types of things have the largest impact to the natural, to the ecosystem and, and all the different populations of species on your property. When you manage primarily, um, uh, excuse me, using primary practices on early successional habitat or old field habitat, or even your grasslands by managing those for sustainable reasons, that's where you have the big benefit. And then you start doing what you were describing. Now you start adding and sprinkling in, if you will, those secondary practices, those, those food plots, you know, introducing some of the different pollinators that you were talking about, you know, those types of things. Those are very beneficial things, but I, they get lost a lot, especially, you know, I deal a lot with private landowners. First thing is, what's your goal? Well, I want to plant some food plots. Well, okay, why? Well, you know, you start asking the questions and explaining this to them. And I, I think that's something that a lot of people, you know, and just because of it, it's, it's what gets pushed, right? There's a lot of money in food plots. There's a lot of money in, in, in people going out and buying those things and putting those in. But really, you know, the primary habitat practices like you were talking about, first one you mentioned, timber stand improvements, right? I mean, going out there and doing those types of things, that is where you are going to see the most the most benefit, especially in, in the shorter term, um, or excuse me, in, in the longer term, you're going to have uh, a lot more benefit there and more sustainable benefit. That's the thing that people have to realize. You need to look at the sustainability and the regenerative aspects of what it is that you're doing. When you talk to other people, like I, I use I, Dr. Craig Harper, you know, I'm sure you know who he is, you know, being a part of the QDMA, and there's probably a lot of people listening who probably don't know who he is. Um, Dr. Craig Harper is a phenomenal resource on habitat management. He's a professor at the University of Tennessee. He's the wildlife extension specialist. I mean, he is phenomenal when it comes to this type of stuff, you know, and, and he always says that, you know, it, it's, it's not a quick fix. You can't just put a food plot in and think that you're going to fix everything. 
you know, so um, kind of, I can talk about that forever. So I'll take a little break and we'll kind of <laughs> jump back into that. Yeah, no, I mean, that, and I know you're not, you're not doing this. I'm not trying to portray food plots as like this bad habitat management practice. Absolutely I mean, it, it's yeah. great. And part of the reason why it's so great and why everyone wants to do it is because you can see pretty immediate results, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, as long as, as long as everything's right, you know, I mean, if you're doing it right and you're doing a soil test and fertilizer, well, all that stuff, you're going to see it grow. Uh, all those other practices, a timber stand improvement and, uh, you know, even planting a tree or doing that early successional old, old field man management is, you know, it takes time and it takes yeah. a long time to see the benefits from that, which is why it's important to do those things. But, Probably the biggest impact that I see of, of why food plots are a good way is because that gets you started. That gets that ball rolling. And when you can see the minimal benefits of that, you can start researching what are the bigger impact benefits that I can do from other management practices. And then once you start that ball rolling now, I mean, you're, you're really starting to learn and engage and interact with wildlife in a way that a lot of, you know, beginning hunters or hunters that don't have access to private land really aren't interacting with that wildlife. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, in no way. I mean, I use food plots a lot and, you know, exactly what you just said, you know, most people when they say, Hey, I'm going to manage my property. They're not going to start off by going out and girdling, you know, trees and things like that. You know, they, they want to go out there and they want to have that food plot that they can walk out onto, put a camera up, you know, and, and watch those things being utilized. And, and, and food plots are a very, very good way to manage your property. It's just people have to understand why it is that you're using them, um, you know, and, and not neglect it the other thing. So exactly what you said, you know, when you put a food plot in, you know, you can, you can put a spring food plot in and, and see almost immediate success. You know, you're going to see deer in that food plot. You're going to see fawns, you know, in the summertime, you're going to see them in there. And that's the gratification because people, you know, want things now, you know, he, we, they want to see it now. They don't want to wait for it. I mean, most people are like, I want to put it in and it's like, okay, you mean to tell me I've got to wait, you know, three to five years, you know, for, you know, depending on what type of timber work that you're doing, it could be even longer. You know, I mean, there's a lot of things that take some time and there's a lot of things that you can do for immediate success. It's utilizing those. You know, I always, you know, you always hear people say that when it comes to wildlife management, you know, wildlife management is not a science. It, it uses science, but it's more of an art form. You know, you have principles of ecology, you have principles of soil science and botany and, uh, you know, just general biology. You know, you have all these things that come together to do what we call habitat management. But if you look at it, I mean, you go on to 10 different properties that each in which are managing uh, for wildlife, even white-tailed deer you're going to have 10 different properties. You know, I, like I tell my students, I said, you know, you, all the artwork that's out there in the world, every painting that you see is a painting and, and some of these famous artists and things like that. But guess what? They all have reds. They all have greens. They all have blues. You know, it's just the way that the composition of, of in the use of those colors, it's the same thing with wildlife management. It's how you incorporate those sciences and, and management practices together to make your your artwork really is what it is and you know some things work and some things don't work you know some things that you think are are absolutely going to work on a property 
that could be one of your biggest failures, you know, and, and that's discouraging to a lot of people. And then unfortunately, you know, I have clients that have run into that in the past and they're like, you know, I tried this and it didn't work. It's like, well, you know, how did you, how long did you give it? Well, I gave it a year and a half. It's like, well, <laughs> it's, it's some of these things take some time, you know, and, and educating people on how these things go as well is also a big important thing too. Don't get discouraged. You know, some of these things take time, but like you said, incorporating some of those things like food plots and, and other supplemental practices, man, can give you immediate success. Immediately, you can see those results and immediately, you know, you get bit by that bug that leads you on into more of the lifestyle manager, you know, of your property. Yeah, and I want to I want to bring up one of my biggest pet peeves and and you mentioned about the educating people on on habitat management and that's that what we as humans would consider pleasing to our eyes in a space that has trees or has uh you know things growing what we see as pleasing isn't good for really any wildlife uh, yeah. You know, if you if you think about, it, I mean, how does everyone want to see their yards at their house? It needs to be perfectly manicured, no weeds in it, quote unquote weeds, uh, you know, and uh, nice and flat and evenly uh, mowed. Uh, you know, when we go to some parks and and things like that, that you know, nature parks um, start. Uh, you know, I'm thinking like the Allegheny National Forest uh, near near us. You know, we see these old growth trees, uh, you know, you can see a couple hundred yards. And I mean, while that does benefit some wildlife, that isn't probably, and while it's pleasing to our eyes, it's probably not benefiting the largest array of wildlife that it could if it was it, this more like tangled mess of, you know, trees being blown down and, and um, you know, sort of uh, an earlier or a younger growth forest. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, that, like you said, you know, we talk about early successional habitat. Let's just use that one as an example. You talked about the yards, right? You know, it's, um, you know, you go out to some of these areas, you see goldenrod and ironweed and, you know, you see all these, you know, what a lot of people call, you know, like you said, quote unquote weeds, you know, a weed is, is just a term for an undesirable plant. So if you, depending on what situation you're talking about, you know, uh, any, any plant could be undesirable for that given project. So like you say, quote unquote weeds, but you know, when you look out some of these grasslands and things, or excuse me, early successional habitat, like you said, it looks nasty. It looks ugly. It's not appealing. And those are the most beneficial areas. And those are probably the most area, the areas in which you're going to see the most use, you know, because one of the things is, is deer live six feet and below. You know, as you put your arms out wide, you know, depending on how tall you are, you know, I'm six foot four. So I always use example for my arms out wide and I say, hey, deer live from here down. You know, so when you look at these species is, is you want they, they want comfortability, right? Is if you, you know, a lot of times people are like, well, I don't see deer. I see them all at night. Well, it's yeah, because your timber, you can see three to four hundred yards through it. Yeah, it's a, it makes a nice walk for you in the woods and, and maybe your grandkids or your kids. But for a deer, there's no sanctuary there. There's no cover. You know, it's not desirable for them. And then, you know, it abuts a agricultural row crop of corn or soybeans. It's like, you, you yeah, I expect that you're going to see them at night because there's no cover. They don't feel safe. They're coming out. You know, I, I've always said, if deer were any smarter, you'd never kill them. 
you know, because they're just the way that they pattern the environment is amazing. And when it comes to managing your property, you have to give them what they want. And a lot of times the limiting factor on a property is not food, but it's cover. But we want our cover to equal food, if that makes sense. And, and I know that does to you, but for the listeners, you know, that's why early successional habitats are very important, but also your timber. You know, opening up the, the, the closed canopy system of these forests that you can see three or 400 yards through. We want to start making those forested areas just as undesirable to look at as those fields to create not only cover, but cover that equals food. Like you said, you know, th those are, there's no monoculture in nature. You know, there's not this monoculture of, you know, non-native, you know, cool season grasses like, like fescue, right? That you see in most yards that that's not appealing, you know? So it, those are things that we got to get away from. And a lot of times the most successful properties are some of the ugliest to look at, you know, as far as the eye appeal goes. And, and we have to model our practices to play off of nature. Yeah, you mentioned cover, and that's something I'd like to liken to an example of, you know, think about in your house, instead of having windows, if all your walls were glass from the floor up to about five feet or six feet, how, you know, would you feel comfortable in that house? You know, and most people are going to say no, right? Um, you know, so that's basically the the area that you've created for deer, because that's, you know, when we're talking about the woods, we're talking about fields, we're talking about literally the home the house of those deer and all those wildlife so we need to try to make sure they're as comfortable as possible uh, and then whenever we do that by giving them cover like you said uh, if we do it the right way which honestly a lot of times is just giving nature the free reign to do what it needs to do it's also going to create that food yeah yeah exactly because i mean you know the idea is um you know it's very rare kind of kind of piggybacking off of that you know, it's very rare to find a landowner that has a large enough track of land that the resident deer population on their property is going to stay on their property. You know, here in Ohio, I mean, that's just, it's really rare. I mean, most of the time you see people with 50 acres, maybe, you know, you get a bigger one, 200, 300 acres. But, you know, the deer, the home range is still well outside of that. So you were talking about the cover aspect and now talking about, you know, the, the kind of the food aspect or kind of the, the attractiveness of you will. I mean, like we, like I tell my, my clients, I said, the idea is you, you're not going to keep deer on your property all the time. The idea is to increase the, the resources of your property enough that you can hold deer on here for as long as possible. You know, I live the analogy that I give is I live in a very small town. You know, there's nothing really, there's not a whole lot here. There's some fast food restaurants, there's a grocery store, you know, there's a hardware store, but by and large, if you really need something, you don't shop in town, Is you go drive 20 minutes to the mall where there's everything, right? So I always tell people, you know, especially like friends and family that I'm talking to, or even at the university uh, where I'm teaching college students there, you know, I say, listen, I said, if you had an area that had, yeah, you're going to want some fast from the human context, 
we want an area that has some fast food options, right? We want some sit-down restaurants. Maybe I'm in the mood for Italian or a steak or whatever, right? I want to have, you know, maybe I want to go clothes shopping. I need to go to a department store, a hardware store. I mean, the list can go on and on and on. If you have an area that has everything that you need, well, that's where you're going to travel and spend most of your day. I tell people, I said, you want to take your kids out shopping. Where do you go? You go out to the mall. Because there's everything there that you need for that day. If you want to eat, you can eat. You want to get things that you need to get, you get them. I said, that's the approach that you need to take on your property. Is I, you want to have you know, those resident does and, and, and just the resident deer in general. You want everything there. We have to have cover. We have to have cover that equals food. But we can't just have one type of food. We need to have a diversity of food. That's where the science comes in to do vegetative sampling to say, hey, what is the diversity out here? How many different species of, of warm season, you know, annual broadleaf forbs do you have out here? What do you have that's invasive that we can get away from and get, get that out of there, right? As you start approaching this to providing all of the different things, because I've been on properties where, you know, like, hey, there's a lot of goldenrod here, for instance, and, you know, the deer just hammer the goldenrod. I've been on other properties where not so much. Are they eating it? Yeah, absolutely. But not nearly as much as I've seen on other properties. And But they're hitting, you know, maybe something else a little bit more so than on others. So having that diversity and that option is really, really critical. And like you said, a lot of that diversity comes from focusing your cover aspect and making sure that your cover equals food. That way, if you're using your analogy, I don't have a wall full of nothing but see-through windows. I have walls full of maybe one or two windows, right? But I also have everything around me that I need. And you think about that. If you have a very healthy property, everything is, you know, sustainable. Every year you've got, you know, nice mix, you know, a dominance of, of perennials versus annual vegetation, you know, but every year you have a very good attractability, if you will, for let's say doe, resident doe populations. Well, guess what? When you start hunting the rut, guess what's going to happen? If you have a lot of the a lot of does on a property, what else are you going to start having a lot on your property? You know, it, you're going to start seeing a lot of competition, and it just makes those hunting opportunities. Now, there's more to it than that, but just kind of making this simplistic. I mean, is just providing everything that you need and looking at it from the needs or the what we call ecology of what it is that you're targeting. In this case, the white-tailed deer. I mean, you're only setting yourself up for success, and a lot of times. The success comes from having a piece of property that does not look that appealing to the eye. Yeah, you bring up the the resident does and and hunting during the rut, and that's something that, I mean, for for the life of my hunting career, I've never really seen a ton of real good rut behavior. Um, but now that we're seeing some of the benefits of some of the management practices we've taken uh, just this past year, I saw more rutting behavior in one morning than I think I might have in my entire 20 years of, of hunting, 20 plus years of hunting now. Uh, you know, so, you know, obviously that's benefiting me for uh, a hunting aspect, but then, you know, even, you know, we have a, a little one acre field that for years was mowed twice a year. That's just the way that it was. And now we're starting to, uh, we've been letting it go and and doing it more to a, a a burn down process every three to five years type deal, and we're seeing more fawns utilizing our property. Why? Because they have cover. That grass that's only 
six inches tall before, you know, that's not doing anything for them. But the grass now that's anywhere between three and five feet tall uh, and different forbs and things that are growing in that field, it, it can benefit them. So, uh, you know, it doesn't look as pretty, but it's benefiting the wildlife that's u- utilizing that area way more now than it ever has in the past. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I always tell people, you know, you bring up the fawns. I'm like, how many times have you been in a, a very poorly developed forested system where you can see two, you know, 100, 100 yards through or whatever and stumbled across the fawn that you couldn't even see? I said, now imagine a field of six foot, you know, tall vegetation. You know that 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 there that fawn is 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 bedded down in. You know, I mean, it's it's virtually impossible to find those things. You know, and if it's hard for us to find, you know, it's 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 hard for coyotes and, and other predators to find as well because the wind goes through there differently. You know, you don't have this open field where they can pick up on scents easier. I mean, you know, th- there's a lot of aspects to that. So yeah, definitely. I mean, there there's there's huge impacts all across the board. Yeah, I mean, just last spring, I I walked through a portion of that field that that we've let grown up and um, to to check on a trail camera and then uh, decided, you know, turned around and walked back out. But instead of walking the exact same path, I I walked literally just two feet to the left from where I walked in and I almost stepped on a fawn. So I walked past that fawn two feet away and it never moved. I didn't know it was there. Um, But then, you know, it, it's just amazing. And granted, I'm not a coyote or a bear. I don't have great sense of smell. Uh, I'm not looking for that fawn for my next meal, but still the, the ability for that fawn to be able to hide in that tall grass, that sort of nastiness that it's amazing. Yeah. The senses of the predators have when you talk about, you know, coyotes and bears, I mean, yeah, it's obviously a lot greater than what we have, but the idea is, is that you're trying to stack the cards against them as much as we possibly can. You know, and a lot of that has to do with, you know, like I said, creating that structural cover to help hide them, to help, you know, break up wind patterns and, and things like that the best that we can. Because you're not, you look at a coyote, I mean, it, their their senses are extraordinary, you know, that, which is why they're, they're one of the reasons why they're so adaptable, you know. So, yeah, I mean, it, that, that the whole thing of predator management is is a whole new <laughs> that's a whole new world to, to to talk about but yeah it's uh yeah it's really amazing when you start looking at some of these things yeah well eric we've covered a ton of information and i want to give my listeners some time to sort of decompress and and analyze yeah. that um so i definitely want to have you back on but if people want to get in touch with you or see some of the work that you're done that you've done uh how can they find you yeah so uh i'm active on social media so facebook instagram uh you know facebook is uh land source consulting l-a-n-s-o-u-r-c-e consulting you can find us on facebook pretty easy same thing on instagram it's just land source underscore consulting and then we also are on the web you know landsourceconsulting.com um you can reach me you know anything on there i don't really you know, the website is more of, uh, you know, kind of a contact type thing. I don't put a whole lot of project specific stuff on there. Um, but yeah, I mean, reaching out to us, you know, our phone numbers on there, our, our forms to contact us and, and yeah, you know, if anybody's out there and you're trying to get a hold of us, I mean, any of those, any of those, uh, uh, platforms are going to go directly to me and, uh, you know, we can get in touch that way. Yeah. We'll, uh, put a link to all those sources in the episode notes. So anyone listening, that's where you can find it. And I will vouch for Eric on being extremely knowledgeable. I came away from that one day in Harrisburg with 
my head just throbbing of information uh, after just talking to you for that day. You weren't even, you know, we weren't even in the woods. We were in a, a at the farm show complex <laughs> in Harrisburg. Yeah. So um, I could definitely vouch for that. Eric, I definitely want to have you back on, uh, but I want to thank you for joining me today. This was uh, an awesome conversation. Hey, Jason, no problem, man. Anytime you want to get together and talk, I'm always available. How knowledgeable is Eric? That uh, the amount of knowledge he has, we can't even fit in one episode, so we're going to be having him back on very, very shortly. Now is the time to really be starting some of those habitat projects that you have been thinking about all winter. We are starting to ramp those up now on our property, and you, it really feels good to be outside, doesn't it? <laughs> I got to plug his company, Land Source Consulting. You can find that on Instagram, Land Source underscore consulting. That's L A N S O U R C E. You can also find him on Facebook. Just search for Land Source Consulting. Find him online if you want to get in touch with him, LandSourceConsulting.com. Boy, does he make it easy for you using the same words, you know his company name for everything land source consulting l-a-n-s-o-u-r-c-e consulting.com this week is the last week for our giveaway so all you have to do if you want a free conservation unfiltered podcast sticker rate and review this podcast on apple itunes or on the google play store or, your second option, it's a sign up for our newsletter. Go to conservewild.org, right there at the top of the page, sign up for the newsletter. If you do both, or even all three, hey, I'll send you two or three stickers if you want them. Once you do that review for us, for this podcast, just take a screenshot of your review. Let us know, either info at conservewild.org, on Twitter, at conserve underscore wild or on instagram conserve the wild it's very simple it's an easy way to get a free sticker until next week stay wild mm-hmm.